Uh, hello, welcome to welcome Plants and to Pets. Yeah, that one. Um. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to Um. Uh, we are a podcast and we are two people and sometimes we talk and sometimes we spend an hour bitching about the world and money and how hard life is before we even start the podcast and then we have nothing <laughs> to talk about. Let's see how it goes when we start the podcast. I mean, I think it's a service to our listeners that we talk about this stuff before so we don't talk to about this stuff on record and they have to listen to us just being whiny and complainy about how hard yeah. everything is. If you want to hear us rant about, I don't know, <laughs> Jeff Bezos and how he's the worst and <laughs> Amazon's the worst, um, that you can... I don't know. That's on our Patreon. Turn up at Yoram's house. <laughs> if if a hundred people of you become our patrons, like first of all, if a hundred people of you get together, make us a Patreon page, and then become patrons. Because um, we don't want to do work. Then <laughs> then you get our our ranting and our um, like being annoyed at the world that we do before and after the show at times. Mm. Um, I promise that now. Um, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> so many promises. How make. how have you been in the last week? I've I've got really burnt out the last like week and a half or so. I've just been feeling really exhausted. Um, I think I already whinged about my neck pain. That was my my whinge of last week. Um, um, that is gone. I am fine. But I just have been feeling like exhausted in that kind of you know corona coaster emotional thing where I I really miss Berlin right now and I really miss all of you guys in Berlin and I've just spent way too much time in my last week like looking at photographs from a year ago when I was hanging out with my friends in Berlin and looking at flights to Berlin even though I know I can't go anytime soon and then looking at the cost of apartments in Berlin and knowing that I can never afford that and all this kind of stuff where I'm just pining for the other places of the world. Um, so I took myself off work for today and tomorrow so I'm taking like a super long weekend, took some holidays because again like I have a lot of holidays and I'm not going anywhere this year so I've sort of done a staycation thing and that is very, very good. I went for a long walk this morning, got some sun, saw some flowers, mm-hmm. did some adulting where I rearranged my pantry, which is was very exciting. Like I just ran downstairs and I flung the cupboards open. I was like showing my housemate, look at my beautiful cupboards. And she's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, she was very supportive, but it's a bit of a pathetic thing to be excited about. But yeah. Um, yeah, I can just say I can recommend guys if you're if the corona times are getting you down or you're working too hard or you're finding hard trouble separating work from life because we are now doing the work from home all the time, take a couple of days off. I cannot recommend it enough and I'm I'm one day in so far, so <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's great that it's helping so quickly already. Um yeah. I mean being outside so today I went into the city centre but as people were setting up so there was this lively bustle of people setting up market stalls and people like working and talking but the customers weren't there yet which meant it wasn't too crowded because I I, I'm scared of the crowds now I mean I don't want people coming within two meters of me even though I have a mask um so this plus the sun gave me the feeling of the real world with people and like this feeling of society that I'm really kind of missing and craving Mm. without having the risk of people actually coming near me so Again, if you can go for a walk at a weird time of day when there aren't people there, but there are a few people there, that was really nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I was at a place with a lot of people uh, last week. I went to a wedding um, and it was interesting to see how a wedding is done in Corona times. 
Um, I was both at the that we, like my friends they didn't do it in church, but they had the thing at the um, what's it called the city office, council. The yeah, council, city council hall, <clears throat> the council hall, um, where and then uh, a party with friends like two days later, um, and both of them were interesting to see because uh, first of all there were only like five people allowed within. Um, the the bureau there of, of the city council hall um there was like a major a, a big plexiglass wall between um the person officiating everything and and us as the as the guests mm -hmm. um but was, like romantic plexiglass right no, just plain plexiglass in a very <laughs> kind of with a soft a soft romantic maybe like rose tinted with a kind of glow a romantic glow <laughs> no nothing although like the entire room was very kitschy and like red velvet chairs and stuff like this Ooh. um But uh, yeah, the plexiglass wall was very neutral. Um, <laughs> but so yeah, we we had this weird thing, um, and then the party was mostly outside in like a courtyard, so there was enough space and fresh air. Um, and then all the buffet was served in sort of individual portions um, on biodegradable like individual um, trays. Uh, so that was also interesting um, because then you don't have all the people like. Ha sticking their hands in the same bowl of food mm. um and looking at these things i'm like why are we not always doing this like this like not the plexiglass wall maybe i mean i i could go without those w during a wedding actually i don't mind them in stores right now um but also when serving food i think it's nice that we look a little bit more at food hygiene now although like mm. I, i mean we didn't have like a ton of cases of people getting um sick from from food at buffets but still yeah i mean not from the food itself but i mean obviously i think we've discussed this before the idea that we are seeing a decrease in other spreads of other germs and, and viruses and, and things like this at yeah. this time and There are some things which are just logical. If you're sick, don't go to work. That should be the standard. If you're sick and you're going on public transport, or even if you might be sick, wearing a mask makes a lot of sense. And we've basically never done that in like Europe or in Australia. And in fact, we found it strange when other people do do that. But it just it's so logical to do that. Like, <laughs> if you're sick, why is it okay that you take your sickness into a public place? Like, yeah. that is... That's yeah. psychopathic behavior. You are choosing <laughs> to make other people sick. And we just kind of think that it's okay because that's what we've decided is our societal norm. And I, I would really like those norms to shift because I'm somebody who gets sick really easily. And yeah, I've seen a lot of people cough on the U-Bahn. That's yeah. Yeah. on uh, the tube. Yeah. Yeah, I heard that especially people working in pharmacies right now that they do so much better this year that they... Mm. I think you mentioned those, that, yeah. Yeah, so to so much less germs and doing so much better this year. So yeah, but apart from yeah, so I had a good wedding, but I feel the same. Like maybe not exactly the same type of burnout, but I also feel like usually I'm very eager to be productive and do things when I'm I'm not doing like my my chores and taking care of the baby and everything. Like I always try to do do something, like try to sew, try to cook, try to learn, try to podcast, try to research stuff, write things. Um, but for the last Last week or so i'm also like i'm so happy if i can just sit down on the couch and just watch some netflix or not do mm. anything really yeah um, i've spent a few I, nights where i'm doing that and like usually I'm, i'm doing it or but like i'm interacting with my husband or i'm doing it and i'm doing my duolingo at the same time or um my new thing is i decided i'm gonna try and learn the countries in africa because if you've ever met me you know my geography is terrible and yoram and i recently did a um 
an article about coffee and these like um, missing coffee species, which they were rediscovering in um, the Ivory Coast and um, Sierra Leone and I think around there. Um, and I actually have no idea where those places are. I thought this is kind of a bit shameful. Um, so I'm starting with Africa. I'm trying to learn. There's 55 countries in Africa. I'm going to learn all of those. And then I'm going to do Europe next because, again, it's embarrassing that I lived in Europe for seven years and I'm still getting confused where Romania is. Um, and then after that, I'm going to move, I don't know, maybe yeah. east to Asia. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we'll see. The, I'm, I'm learning Polish right now on Duolingo. Seriously? Uh, yeah. Um, For our friend or just because um, it's just somewhere because, you might I mean, go we're, often? We're going to Warsaw next week and I thought it would be nice if I could speak, like, not speak really, but if I could understand a little bit and say, like, the standard phrases at least when shopping and, and doing stuff. Um, and I, I, I found it just very interesting because the, the language is very different from the other languages that I learned. Mm-hmm. Um and, and there's also a disconnect between the spoken language and the the written language as far yeah. as like you have to relearn how to it's the same letters but the the letters when they come together make completely different sounds from what we do in English or in German. Yeah, and they have more of the is it the diacritics or accents like anyway like the mm-hmm. little embellishments of the the vowels mostly and but also for some consonants um that <laughs> I can't even I don't even know how to do them on my keyboard uh, whenever I type this into Duolingo it's like pay uh, uh, like uh, um, pay attention to the accents. Yeah, pay attention to the accents is what it say, says all the time. I'm just like, I don't know how to make the little thing <laughs> under the A. It's like if I long press on A, it's not offered to me. I don't know how I get that. Um, so if any of you are playing um, cliche bingo with your arm and I, we've now made bread. We've started sewing. We're on Duolingo. We've done gardening. And <laughs> we've. I've started some exercising. I'm doing yoga now. So um, I think that's pretty much a bingo at this stage. I'm not yeah. sure what else we can. I also, I don't I also tried paper making if that's if that's useful um oh and i i cut my own hair and i tried to perm it so i've dyed it cut it and permed it which i think is like the the trifecta of home care <laughs> this was only about a month into quarantine i got bored <laughs> enough to, to perm my hair i have very little respect for my hair because my hair is thinning i'm i'm gonna be bored in some years i've seen i'm seeing how it goes with my my father and my grandmother um and I'm very much of the opinion that if I don't like it, I can chop it off. So <laughs> yeah. I thought, you know what? Let's per- let's try perming it. Um, and Five it days stay. into quarantine, I was like, I'm just going to be bald from now on. <laughs> I wanted to take just a bus cutter and just like go crazy on my hair, even though it wasn't that bad already. But uh, I was like, nothing I can do now. It's quarantine time. <laughs> Got to get my I mean, quarantine shave. Yeah. And other hairs can also not be cut. So there's like a kind of net balance of hair. Um, My friend once completely shaved his head bald and he had to grow a bushy beard. And he's like, this way there's at least the same average amount of hair on my face and head region. And it's kind of okay. favorite plant okay so my plant today is chlorella ohadii chlorella Yoram. that's that's an algae thing there we go i was gonna say your arm is chlorella a plant but you already got it it's an algae um in fact it's a single-celled green alga and if you think about chlorella you've got this kind of single-celled round blob of an alga your arm, where does it grow uh, I try to think now if it's a sweet water or salt water algae. 
Um, Just I'm make gonna, a guess. I'm going to go with uh, sweet water, and it grows in like in topsoil and stuff, like uh, it, uh, wet, wet try areas. Again. Um, then desert sand crusts. <laughs> <laughs> you cheater. <laughs> yeah, I just had Googled um, it because I wanted to see a picture of it. I always it. like to look at pictures when you talk about plants and that was one of the headlines. Yeah, so this is a really cool algae that doesn't live in water. It lives on the crust of the desert. Um, and this in itself is kind of amazing yeah. that there's an algae living in the desert. But this special algae is even more stupendously amazing because it can survive and not die even when you blast it with two times more radiation than that of maximum sunlight on earth so you just like turn all of the blasters <laughs> on um and it's fine it's just kind of it's fine um and this is because it has some really special properties. So one thing is that we've discussed this a little bit before. The To do photosynthesis, there's certain um, protein complexes that are required. So the photosystems, they're called photosystem 2 and photosystem 1. And photosystem 2 has a certain part of it called the D pro D1 protein, which is quite susceptible to getting damage. Basically, imagine like it's attracting all of this light. It's drawing all of this light energy. And it's like a lightning rod. And it's kind of funneling it into one location and sometimes if that light's too much it basically overcomes it and it explodes it it just explodes and what explodes is that central part of the, like the eye of the the, the funnel um, and that's the d1 protein but chlorella basically has this ability where its d1 protein doesn't get degraded by excess light um it just is kind of fine and it just survives um in all of these conditions so it's a really interesting species because it has this really amazing ability to survive, but it also seems to grow okay under lower lights as well. So often there's this trade-off with um, organisms where if they can survive very stressful um, situations, they do it by basically shutting down when they're like being really slow when they're not under stress, um, just to kind of yeah, it's wait like, for the hard times. It's, it's like as if they would run around with like very heavy sunglasses like very uh, strong sunglasses all the time and then when you are inside a room then you can't see uh, and so you do poorer when there is not this excess light um in like when for some species that are adapted to this highlight um and so yeah so it's not that common that's a good yeah if you're wearing if you're wearing really strong sunglasses and it is dark you're going to be blind you're not going to yeah. be able to see um, yeah that's a really good um way of saying it um, but this this guy basically grows fairly okay um, under normal light. And the reason I'm talking about it today is because there is a study that just came out maybe mm. last week on the 27th of July, this week even, um, where they did a kind of omixy approach to look at the mechanisms that the algae uses um, to survive. So um, it's a study by Haim Treves, and just as a disclaimer, I've met him. I don't think, Yoram, you've met him, um, but he was doing a guest stint uh, or working for some time at our old institute where Yoram and I both worked, and the paper has a lot of names that we're familiar with, so disclaimer, um, I had actually heard about this algae before the publication came out because I once saw a talk from Haim on the topic, and that's, that's why I thought it was cool. Um, but you should definitely go and check that out. There's this 
Nature Plants publication, but there's also, again, one of these kind of blog posts behind the paper um, called Green Gold from the Desert, where the lead author, Haim, sort of discusses what they found in the paper. Um, but I think I might do a blog post on this at some stage because it's, it's just really cool. He's done a series of publications over the last like five or six years where he's investigated the different properties of this um, amazing single-celled alga and looking at the different mechanisms it uses to survive in the desert. And obviously this is a really interesting um, subject because it has some things, it can do things that our normal plants can't do. So we want to see if it's possible for us to basically take advantage of those traits. So be able to grow things, for example, at a faster rate or under higher light or under certain stress conditions, um, which our normal plants can't do. So it's, it's a really interesting and amazing species. So that's uh, Chlorella ohadii. I hope I'm saying that right. Yeah, these extremophiles, um, and this is a type of extremophile, right, that yes. can survive in these intense um, light, uh, in these high light intensities. Um, these are always very interesting, right, for research. We, we got our TAC polymerase from, from a bacterium that can survive mm -hmm. in like 90 or 100 degrees Celsius uh, hot springs underwater. Um, so we got one of our most important enzymes from this. And so maybe we can learn something really cool from a little algae that is able to just deal with intense uh, amounts of light to I mean, we always end up saying, like, we can make our crops better. But, yeah, this is, like, highlight stress combined with drought and, and so on is something and that's that's very common and a big issue. And having understanding how some, like, species deal with it and still do photosynthesis um, is very interesting. Yeah, and, and dealing with changes in light intensity is something that plants deal with continuously and in very short time scales. So if you think about um, a plant out in, in the real world, suddenly a cloud comes over the sun or even more rapidly, maybe um, the leaves of some other pl um, plants brush, like cover that leaf. So plants can go for n from near darkness into like intense full sunlight in the matter of seconds or milliseconds. And they've got to be constantly adapting to this because if they turn everything on, you can get this overcharging thing where you basically explode yourself. But if you turn everything off, so stop collecting light, then you end up having no energy. So the ability to like do this change thing is also something that's really interested science scientists yeah. as far as yeah understanding how we can improve photosynthesis, I guess. Diversity in the plants. Science. And this week it is me presenting um, a non-Y researcher um, from the bigger like world of plant science. So yeah, today I want to present uh, Maria Ann Muriti. Um, she is an associate professor at the Department of Evolution, Ecology and Organismal Biology of the Ohio State University. And um, she got her PhD in 1999 and is now working on the regulation of plant populations and communities uh, with a strong focus of the plants in the Colorado desert in California. And here comes in my, like, my lack of geography. I have no idea <laughs> if Ohio is anywhere near the desert in California. I'm just going to assume it is, but I, <laughs> I, can't, I can't tell. No idea. Um, 
But uh, the reason why I picked her is because I uh, read an article of that she co-wrote. She's the first author on a Nature Correspondence article that's called Hidden Figures in Ecology and Evolution, um, which addresses the issues that um, especially black women face in um, ecology and evolution studies, but also in so the grander, in the bigger picture and it's a very interesting read and i think a very important point to raise um where she um she pretty much raises the point that uh, intersectional feminism is raising for a long time um that is that there are different ways to be disenfranchised or to be discriminated against but these things can overlap um and you mm -hmm. can't say because of uh that it's that you are equally disenfranchised if you are discriminated against your sexual orientation or the color of your skin um and especially when these things overlap um then you can have these additive effects and um it's very important to stress that because very often um people who are acting against these systemic discriminations uh they sort of have to pick a battle they have to like either support women or they support mm -hmm. black people or they support mm -hmm. people of uh like non-heteronormative sexual orientations but um then whenever they do that they sort of have to um ignore all of the other Uh, ways people can be discriminated against and this clearly is an issue and she raises in that article she raises the the point that um she often had to pick a, a choose between like working towards better representation of women or of black people in in her case she's a person of color and um so Uh, yeah, she wants to. She's, she says uh, black women are the ones that are often the most disenfranchised in, in academia, and makes the point that I find very important, uh, where she says, in all that we do. It's critical to remember and restate that when they let black uh, when black women enter, we all enter. Like if you uh, make if you set up your system in a way that even the people that get see the most discrimination mm -hmm. that they can enter then all the people who don't see the discrimination can also enter. It's not a disadvantage for the other people now. Um, you make sure that uh, everybody has um, access to a career in academia. Mm. And um, I I really enjoyed reading that. And um, when I then looked into Maria Miriti's uh, work, she's also on on top of her biological research. She's also doing, uh, is, is very active um, in uh Yeah, in addressing terms of equality and diversity in her field of ecology and evolution um, to the point that she actually publishes research papers in this uh, area as well as in um, the actual pl um, plant science that she's doing. And I found that just very cool. I think that's very important to have people who, if they have not only an interest but also an expertise in these fields, um, that they don't feel a sort of pushed away or stop stopping themselves from working scientifically in these other areas like in terms of uh of diversity and equality um there's no reason not to be part of that scientific community if you have the the expertise and the interest even though you are a trained um biologist 
Um, so I, I uh, quite enjoyed that, and I can only recommend checking out her um, her lab, the Meriti lab. Uh, we're going to link to that as well. Um, where you can find a list of her publications and something that's related to uh, the article that Maria Miriti wrote um, is something that I also found um, I think also on, on Nature um, that's an, another article that's too many white uh, senior white uh, academics still re resist recognizing racism with yeah, a couple of... Yeah, I have of that flagged also for today. Um, yeah. Nemanje Bumpus Bum yeah. is the, the author of that. Yeah. And that's also something um, that you should read. Uh, I mean, it's something that we on on this show we've talked about uh, extensively. Um, the fact that uh, systemic racism exists also in academia, um, but this article again puts a, a good highlight at at um, the struggles and how often people have to justify and explain and really sort of state that this was discrimination and this that, that something was not just a joke not just um a passing comment not just something it wasn't meant this way and so on um yeah i want i wanted to highlight a couple of things from that article because i think there was so the first thing the, the introduction to the article is the phrase why did we let you in then and this is basically that um she started working at um john hopkins university um, and they wanted her to lead a diversity initiative because she's a black woman and she wasn't interested. And they were basically like, well, as a black woman, this is part of your job. And this kind of focuses on the fact that people who are in these positions are often asked to do extra work and extra work for free. And they have more pressure on themselves to represent. And if they don't represent then and educate, which are both challenging and Time, like time and energy expending tasks, um, they can limit the chances for other people, which is really unfair. Um, and if they do, they end up dragging them, like putting more costs on themselves. And then people say, well, why didn't you publish more papers? So this is like this kind of no win situation that people are in. So that was the first thing. Um, the second thing that I thought was really interesting in that was that she was talking about what Yoram just mentioned, this kind of intersectionality problem. And that when people compile lists of female scientists and black or Latinx scientists, they basically always put her as a black woman on the latter, which means that they kind of see this mutual exclusivity. She belongs to the black um, list, not to the to the woman list, because the woman list is presumably a larger list and it's easier for them to find other women. This is kind of a, um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the rationale, but again, like these are not exclusive things. So you shouldn't be saying, um, this is the thing. Uh, the the what I really liked about her her article was a statement, um, how to sort of how she responds now. The idea is that when whenever she gets um, like achievements, there's always kind of somebody who makes a comment that they're being bestowed because of her gender or her race. Um, um, in this case, her race being black. And so her reply is, that implies that you cannot envision a scenario where a black person is the strongest candidate. And I thought this was really, really powerful because um, I don't have her experience, obviously, but I have heard that argument used a lot with women in our field um, where like, oh, look, um, you've got this job because you're a woman, you know, yep. affirmative action towards women. And that is a really nice way of addressing it. And it's unfair that one would have to address this in such a way, but I thought that was a really um, beautiful response to kind of say. Yeah. And then 
the final thing that I kind of took from this, and I'm not sure, Yoram, if you had the same feeling, but I was thinking about the way that having to constantly hear, in her case, both anti-black and anti-female comments, but for her, it was mostly about race, so anti-black comments, how this can build up. And the problem with these comments is that they always come in at all situations. So when you do, like, when things are not going well, you get blamed for your for your race or your gender or whatever minority you are. And then when things are going well, that also gets put on your race or your gender. And again, it's it's still in a negative way. You get told that you didn't deserve those things. And these things just constantly add up and there's nothing that takes away from them. Like, because if you do do well, you've done that because you've worked hard and, and you're intelligent and you've put a lot of effort. Um, and there's still somebody commenting on who you are as a minority. And I was trying to think of how that's a really big problem. I know that over the years that I was working in academia, I I have a list uh, that just kept on getting bigger and bigger of issues of racism, xenophobia, um, sexism, or um, like personality, gender-related issues that just got bigger and bigger. And nothing, nothing is getting rid of that. And it drove me crazy and I was in a very privileged position, um, obviously, but it's still, I, this, this grew up. And I was trying to think what can actually limit that growth. And I think the only thing that I think I found helpful, and I'm not sure if it's for other people, I'd love to hear what minorities have to say about this, was when other people voiced they're like they kind of were true allies and got behind the fight as well because if not these incidences even if they're really really small microaggressions tiny things they build up and they do not go away Mm. nothing that you can do can make them go away because you are not the problem the the other people the bullies and the oppressors they're the problem and i think the only thing that can help like somehow heal slightly is that others help to to fight that you're not the one who always has to take on that yeah. um that cost and i was trying to think of it because the way she tells the story it was like she tells the story about having really the worst racist thing said to her and then also of her her shining achievements again having racist things said to her and i can't just just this being in this world where it's always negative and just piling on negative and piling on negative and and she mentions at one stage that she has really encouraging mentors but that still doesn't take away from any of the race-based issues this is kind of an independent thing um so that, that i don't know i was trying to think about that does that make any sense i don't know if i'm really articulating myself no i i, I think i understand what you mean and i i mean i'm also speaking from a very privileged position so i can't fully feel that um but i i can empathize with the idea that these these microaggressions that constantly there are these like abrasive interactions that every interaction takes away a little bit of your i don't know if it's like sanity or well-being or just like general like stability in in your or um your belief in yourself uh and every single time it takes a little bit more away from that but just like a tiny bit and i can really 
empathize with the idea that this is very hurtful and harmful when throughout your entire life i mean it's not just like your professional life it's your entire life that these things are happening um yeah i can i can sort of imagine the pain i also don't have a good idea how uh, or from experience how i would like negate these effects but i think you're right I mean, when I you say that, can be... that ally, allyship um can be a good way if other people call out this stuff so the person who is affected who who gets attacked with these microaggressions that they don't yeah, have I to don't... bring it up that somebody else takes sort of the hit seeks the confrontation somebody else puts in the work of the fight for a, for a moment i think i imagine that that this could be helpful Yeah, I think I don't want to minimize the problem and say I don't think there can be like a way to balance a scale. Obviously, the only yeah. way to balance a scale is to like have a huge upheaval where people stop being dicks. Like that's generally what we need um, and not just individually, but as a society, like these systemic problems we have. But I'm just trying to like, again, I'm trying to put myself in this scenario and there's some there's some risks associated with that because again, I am very privileged, but I can feel the accumulation of insults that have happened on the basis of my nationality and of my my gender that occurred to me in in, in academia and um not even aimed at me but aimed at like also um you know women in general and, and stuff like that um and they these are not things that like kind of you can somebody says something and then it's like okay now i've i've erased that by doing this positive action yeah. they always exist like i can forget it or i can forgive it or whatever um but they exist and then i mean what happens usually is they exist and then maybe you tell somebody that they exist and often that other person will then excuse the behavior of of the the insulter and the oppressor which gives you then a secondary um burden and then if you try and argue and tell them that's no it's not appropriate you get then a tertiary burden of having to try and educate somebody else and also fight for your own rights so you just have this pile and pile of burdens and i feel like this is stuff that really does pile up over time um and i yeah just like again you guys have to go and read the articles obviously we are not in the right place to talk about this um properly but i was trying to think of like it just it really made sense to me how she was saying The, the good and the bad are all associated, all get put back on her minority status, on her race here. Um, and that's, that's so bullshit and it's so unfair. And I think, I think at this point, I think we, we've said, I think we expressed we need to how, how we feel about this. I think we have to move on uh, and, and talk <laughs> instead about biases. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias. 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 Um, it's me. I am talking. I went right to the end of the alphabet, mostly because I was lazy and I was like, hmm. And this one is called the Zygarnik effect. So I chose it because it was at the end and also because it had a kind of cooler name. So it's named after a Russian psychologist called Blumen Zygarnik. And um, she was the first one to study the phenomenon. Apparently, according to Wikipedia, her professor was the one who actually first observed it. Um, this is Kurt Lewin, if anybody is familiar with the Gestalt psychologists. Um, I personally am not. But <laughs> they, they noticed that a waiter was better at recalling um, orders if they hadn't been paid for yet. 
so they could kind of list the items, I'm guessing. Um, but once they had completed the class, so once everybody had paid, they could no longer remember this waiter, could no longer remember the details of the order. So the Zygonet effect follows off, off from this. Um, uh, Bloomer then did a lot of studies about this this waiter and his ability to remember unfinished things but not finished things. Mm. And the effect itself is the idea that it's easier to remember something when an activity has been interrupted and not continued. Um, but once it's finished, we are more likely to forget them than if they're unfinished. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's linked to a similar effect, which is called the Ovsiankina effect. I'm sorry, I'm sure I said that wrong. Um, but Maria Ovsiankina um, was a colleague of Bluma Zygonik. Um, and she was looking at this kind of task interruption. And her um, effect is the idea that if you interrupt an action, you're more likely to then go back and finish it. And this is because potentially there is some incentive associated to the fact that the task is in, is, is unfinished. So having an unfinished task like something on our to-do list that has been half done but has not been ticked off somehow has like a cost to us which gives us incentive to finish the task even if there's no other positive like outcome from finishing the task even if the task has like doesn't have a specific use in our brain having it unfinished is somehow giving us Mm. this cost um yeah so for me, it I was associating it with the fact that I can never remember my dreams unless I break them. So I can only like if I if I wake up suddenly, and I think that part of that is because of the sudden waking up. So the the, the kind of instead of slowly coming out of the dream and going through I don't know a different cycle of sleep, I suddenly come out and I remember it. But um, it's it sort of makes some sense to me, and it also is this this idea to me that. When something is familiar, uh, is, is unfinished, I have um, a weight in my brain that is is mm. stressing me out. You know, there's this kind of thing hanging over your head when like you haven't an finished Like unfinished PhD thesis. That's <laughs> like that, where it's like, you don't technically have to do it. It's actually okay if you don't do it, but it's costing you something that it's constantly there. Yeah. Yeah, I think I have the feeling when I look at back at, at projects um, that I've been involved in for for work um, that when I'm when a project is not finished, even if it's on a just on a break, I have a lot more details of it still in mind if I want to talk about it or or recall it than if it's done if it's if everything worked out. Um, then I'm just like, yeah, I have no idea what I've done there. Like I I remember some some of the details, but I quickly forget a lot of the like the fine stuff in there and which also makes sense to me because your brain is like i've completed i can put it away i don't have to you know it's it's done and i can just kind of put it into the long-term memory bank some eventually but so that means if you want to remember something don't finish it well the the idea is based on um people studying and then stopping their study and like playing a game or doing something a bit unrelated and this the the Zygonite effect says that they would remember the material better that they were studying if they interrupt their study and do something else and then come back to it. Mm-hmm. And I think we've also got this idea of like left brain, right brain, like you should stop studying and like juggle for a little bit to kind of give your mind a break, but also, I don't know, switch, you know, mm-hmm. the way you're th- thinking. 
I should comment that um, this was developed by Blumer Zeigermit in like the late 20s. So 1927, I think, is the original publication. And it's since been maybe not particular shown to be maybe not particularly true. Um, there are several <laughs> studies performed later in different countries which have attempted to replicate the findings and they couldn't find any significance between the finished and the unfinished tasks. So this is studies that happened in the late 60s. So mm-hmm. maybe it's not true, but it is something that sounds very logical to me. So I'm going to go with my own, what is it? The anecdotal, bias where my, our own uh, anecdotal evidence. No, confirmation bias, where yeah. I already hold a belief, and therefore I believe that the Zygronect <laughs> effect <laughs> confirms my belief, and therefore it must be true. <laughs> that's, that's a very good point. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. And uh, this week I have something um, that I found on technology review and it's called uh, 10 tips when talking to people about conspiracy theorists um <laughs> and they took that from interviews with people on on reddit who run a subreddit that uh deals a lot with uh conspiracy theories um i'm just trying to find again which subreddit is it? i think it's changed my view um where people ha- hold a certain belief and then um, on the field of debate, they are then f- f- um, experiencing counter-arguments and so on, and then they change their view, hopefully, or maybe not hopefully. I have no idea what exactly the views are that are supposed to be changed, there, hopefully for the better. Um, but I found it interesting for the ten- list of 10 things that you, when you talk to somebody who very strongly holds a belief, um, and I think in our field in plant research, it's not always necessarily a conspiracy theory, but you have people who are very strongly opposed to genetic modification or to industrial farming or to uh, even climate change and things like this, where it really goes into conspiracy theory territory. And these can people that are that we get in touch with and where we would like to have a sort of a productive. Uh, conversation or like a constructive conversation with them uh, without just shouting at each other that the other side is wrong should i should i try to guess the 10 things or is yeah. it too too tricky no i i think they are very basic things um that okay are just don't like don't attack the person like don't do ad hominem yeah. and hominem attack yeah i think that's even number one here that says always always speak respectfully um, okay so my second one was going to be don't shout but i guess that kind of covers the same thing yeah that's like um be have respect show compassion and empathy and that will help to open their minds and hearts uh, otherwise they will just shut down if you are starting a t- if you if you start you why are you so stupid to believe that then it's not ideal you won't get far um so ask them what their beliefs are to start with like what and why they believe the thing yeah i think uh they have it either with test the waters first or mm-hmm. um, also um, uh, I think it's the Socratic method where you slowly uncover like what their position is and then make mm-hmm. them question it themselves but try to figure like listen to them first and hear what their point of view is and then based on that start um, like pointing out the things that might not be true 
and often there is like a grain of truth even in a conspiracy mm-hmm. theory and if you find that grain of truth and then build from that you can sort of get around all of the other lies that are around that grain of truth I would say finding out what sources they would trust would be important. So, like, the source thing, I think that's something where mm-hmm. I've heard this in arguments. If you can't agree on what sources to trust, you can never come to... So, if you say, well, scientific studies show, and they say, well, I don't believe science because Big Pharma or whatever, you can't you can't ever have a scientific argument. So, I would say, like, working out the mm-hmm. what they're willing to trust as a source would be something that I would think... I think that's not on the list, but I think it's a very good point. I think it's on the um, the on the in the rest of the article where they talk about a few of the additional um, aspects of it. Um, I think they they mention that that fact. Also, that some people, if they deny things like science in general, um, there might come a point where it's no use talking to them because you have no mm-hmm. basis of making an argument if somebody refutes um, all logic, arguments, and science then how can you convince them of anything if they hold a belief? Um, because then, mm. yeah, you can't make a case for anything, really. Um, so that's a point that they make also. Like, it's if it gets bad, it's fine to just stop. Like, you don't yeah. owe... Most <laughs> people, out. you don't really owe them anything, especially when it's loved ones, which is another point here that they make, that if you have very people that you're very close with and they are... Um, devout followers of a of a conspiracy theory, um, you have to like find for yourself the answer to the question like, is it worth like upsetting my loved one? Is it worth having a fight over Thanksgiving um, over this topic um, just to convince them that they might be wrong? Um, so I I'm on I'm on the side that you have a responsibility to your to influence your sphere as much as you can, but. <laughs> Yeah. That's um, definitely not agreed. Um, I mean, they, I they're say not saying it, you shouldn't do it. They just say, like, be careful with be, it yeah. and, and figure out for yourself and if it's worth And work out what you're willing to pay, basically. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think that seems like how much are you willing to give of your time and your energy and compromise to your relationship? Because this list is not only about how to be convincing, it's also about how to stay sane while doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, so Okay, well then... Um, only deal with one issue at a time, I would say. Like, don't try and, like, tackle multiple mm-hmm. ideas at one time. Um, take a break occasionally. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely on the list. Um, um, I guess make sure you yourself are very well informed because that seems like the worst thing is... I mean, this is what I often find myself where I'm like, I feel like you're wrong and I know it, but I can't... I don't have my sources myself, so I'm just talking bullshit, but I'm... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's not on the list, and I think this is also a case where sometimes I think it's fine to walk away from a place where somebody is wrong if you don't have sort of the tool set on you um, to make a good case. Because otherwise, the, uh, the other, if the other person is just like very quick at throwing fake things at you, and you are not very solid in your subject, then you 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 can't win. You'll, you'll just I mean, lose. the problem I the problem I found with that is so I've had this conversation before where I've said you know somebody told me something I'm like that's wrong I'm sure that's wrong um, and it was what was what was the idea it was the fact that um, you know Trump is is currently taking children away from their parents um, and locking up children 
And the person was like, well, I think that was happening before in Obama. I'm like, I'm, I'm just really certain that's not true. But I didn't have the, the resources. Mm. I, had, I had heard about it via This American Life. I didn't have any resources. And I was like, that's just not true. And then afterwards, I went and Googled it and I checked it. And it was not true. So, like, I was like, yes, vindicated. But then I was in the situation where I definitely could not then go back to the person and be like, by the way, I Googled this <laughs> and you are wrong and I am right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, um, I don't know the other ones. You have to just tell me what the. Um, I mean, one of uh, the things is like go private. So if you find something on Facebook, don't publicly in the comment chain try to make the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, write a direct message to that person because on a comment chain you always get then bystanders jump in there, mm. and that can be often very detrimental. Um, either people who are then even further down the rabbit hole of the conspiracy theory or other people that want to help but are actually doing a very bad job and and, uh, then they become insulting or something like this. Um, So if you go private, then you also give the other person like a sort of a safe space where they can admit that they're wrong because they're just admitting admitting it to one other person. They would never do that in public. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So go private um, then test the waters. So try to see if they would actually be willing to change their mind. Um, mm-hmm. Ask them like stuff like, "What would it take you to change your mind?" And mm-hmm. if, uh, if they say like, "I will never change my mind on five G causes Corona," then it's okay to rage quit. Yeah, then you can just say, "Okay, fine. There's nothing <laughs> I can do." Then turn here. off Twitter and or Reddit for the day and go to Instagram for a bit, guys. Like. <laughs> Yeah, Twitter I think that's evil. that's the point. Like, if it gets bad, stop. It's fine to just like shut everything down and go for a walk, mm. do something else, and be like, I I don't have to invest in here so much. Um, then uh, yeah, there's the the truth sandwich idea. Um, that whenever you refute something, instead of just saying uh, you believe five G co- causes Corona, but actually it's not causing Corona. Um, if you do this, then you have. If you just look at the numbers, you've stated the fake science and the true science an equal number of times, and. A very simple cognitive bias that we have is that re- is repetition. Um, the more often we hear something, the more likely we are to believe it. So if mm-hmm. you just based on that, if you want to have um, more weight on the truth, uh, do a truth sandwich where you say um, Corona is not caused by 5G towers. There's some people who believe that 5G uh, networks are causing Corona, but recent studies have shown that this is all like uh, Corona is not is a, a virus particle. Uh, 5G co- communication is based on an electromagnetic wave. These are two very different concepts, so they don't go together, so it doesn't cause it. So you always ra- wrap the fake thing that you are refuting t- uh, in two layers of truth even if you are repeating uh-huh. yourself because that's the point of it to repeat repetition yourself. is also very important to drive something home yeah yeah and i think the last thing that i want to pick from this list here is that every little bit helps um so uh-huh. one conversation even if it goes on for a long time on like a messaging for a couple of days one conversation is probably not enough to change somebody's mind completely, especially when they're very far down the rabbit hole. But if Mm -hmm. that happens time and time again, that people take the time to convince them, um, they might actually change their mind. Um, So even if you have the feeling that you couldn't completely convince someone, maybe you just put like a little bit of a a grain of doubt in in them that they start questioning what they believe in. And a few weeks or months down the line, they will have come around. Um, so 
Um, and I mean, that's that's something that, I mean, that's happened to me many times and it should be happening to you. And if, if you feel yourself saying, I've never had a conversation and then changed my mind, well, something's wrong with you, go and, go and look into that. I mean, often I've been in situations where I've been in a discussion with somebody and I've really passionately argued my, argued my case. And then afterwards, I've thought more about the other person's point of view and kind of looked into a bit more and be like, you know what? They weren't completely an idiot. Like, actually, there was some, some good some good situation like some good information there um so it's also okay if the person doesn't change their mind immediately like just stop and go away and they might change their mind in a week's time or like this can also help at some point exactly um so yeah so that's 10 tips when talking to people about conspiracy theories um we'll link that as well in the description on a very similar comment um at retro ishian mm, um, <laughs> on Twitter, I believe, uh, has a statement that says, I give my kids 50 cents every time they see an unmasked person and loudly say, why is that person where, why isn't that person wearing a mask, mom? <laughs> Highly recommend. And I really love this idea because um, we've just had that it's now government recommended that people wear their masks in shops and on public transport in the UK. And I've been out in the last couple of days and noticed that a lot of people are not doing this. And unfortunately, the stores are not enforcing it because I don't know civil rights, whatever. Um, but I spent a lot of time on my shopping trip last weekend wanting to ask people why they were not wearing masks and wanting to explain to them that them not wearing masks is endangering my life, but not wanting to do that because... That would then involve a conversation, which means they would be more likely to spit their disgusting corona on me. So, uh, if yeah. you have small children, I highly recommend. <laughs> I really love this idea. I'm always careful about the idea of like giving children money for simple tasks because that reinforces the idea that it's only worth doing something if you immediately get paid for it. But apart from that, I really um, <laughs> I'm down with the idea of having your children. Being do very your dirty upfront. work for you yeah 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 i think um this seems like to me this seems like an objectively i mean i can see a possibility where somebody actually can't wear a mask for medical reasons and then that being not very okay um but, no, but based on the amount of people who are not wearing masks right now in london and the amount of people who i can imagine have severe respiratory syndromes which make it impossible for them to wear a mask or wear stay at home um, I'm guessing that a lot of those non-mask wearers are just yeah. like... Um, on the same the topic of, of masks and, and so on, there's, I found an interesting article on The Atlantic on the hygiene theater, um, which is related... Uh, have you heard about the security uh, theater? Mm -mm. This this is the idea that oh the idea that we when we go onto the planes we go through the theater of like not having more than a hundred meals and like getting things checked but the reality is it doesn't do anything exactly although I would say unless you're flying in or out of Israel because they check hard um, so we feel safe because we go through the theater exactly and often that can lead to a false sense of security um, mm -hmm. because you think ah we've done all like the we, we checked all of the bottles to not be bigger than 100 milliliters so the plane is safe now when in fact you can have like I've, I've seen that in in airports especially in berlin we have a rather small but still international airport um where the security checkups are 
rather lax um, but they still go through all the trouble of like scanning your laptop separately and you have mm. o- only the 100 milliliter bottles and all of that but then you have like open doors where very like low wage workers um, push the, the trolleys for the luggage through large open doors that also stay open for a little bit longer so people could sneak in people could bribe them very easily to go through there it's like oh this, my goodness, don't make your, it, I'm just saying like this, like this, this, this massive sort of this method okay, they, they will have they have certainly they also have some measures there to make sure that nothing happens there but i would be more concerned about that but back to the hygiene theater no, 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 but i wanted to say in the in for me in the situation of flying i think it makes sense because the the fear of having somebody hijack the plane became very high after september 11 but the reality of it happening is very 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 low right the 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 risk of having danger in flight is way lower than a lot of uh, way yeah it's it's just basically non-existent so it makes sense to have the theater because the actual risk is not really there yeah um, but when it comes to a hygiene theater, there are really costs that we have to think about. So the idea is there mm-hmm. that many places now, especially in the United States, but also elsewhere, um, they start going crazy on the disinfectant of surfaces now. Um, so there is um, gyms that uh, advertise that they are constantly wiping everything down. There's plans that schools uh, spend one day a week where the entire school is pretty much fumigated and uh, sterilized and um, lots of other uh, examples like this where they spend a lot of energy, a lot of time and a lot of resources oh, but the on, reality on disinfecting surfaces. When... Mm. It's passing people to people mostly. It's not passing yeah, by the surfaces. It's very rare that, um, the, or the evidence on surface transmission is very low. But people think that if they just wipe everything down constantly, or if they close the schools for a day and and um, use very harsh disinfectants on every surface, um, that this is enough, and then they might like go a little bit um, laxer on the masks or on mm-hmm. the social distancing or if it, it sometimes it can be just the energy that it takes away especially in the, in the school example where it's anyway an, an immense challenge to get into a working school system again with spacing and uh, like spreading out both like physically and on a time schedule spreading out the students in a way that they don't really get too close to each other and then you shut down an entire day of the week to do senseless surface disinfection um, mm. this is this is then where the hygiene theater gets problematic because you could use this day to spread out the, the, the schedule even further um, and instead you're shutting down the schools and the uh, what I want to stress out as well when, with the article I think it's very interesting to read um, that they don't make the case that we should stop hygiene. Um, it's just unnecessary surface disinfection. I think also the New York subway, um, they're taking extra rounds and disinfecting the entire trains and so on. Um, and the thing that actually works is masks, masks, social distancing, and moving activities outdoors. That's it. That's how mm-hmm. we protect ourselves. That's how we beat this thing, is a quote from the article. Um, and we should focus our energy on making masks available to everyone making sure that our events and our work and everything is set up in a way that social distancing is possible and that whenever we can we move activities outdoors and this is much more important than yeah stopping a a subway train and disinfecting everything or closing down the school 
Yeah, and it's a bit this moral licensing thing, right? Where you do half an hour of exercise and then because of that you eat an entire cheesecake. It doesn't add up. You have to be aware of the what you've put in and what you're taking out. And just because somebody is cleaning does not mean you can take your mask off. This is not, I mean, yep. this is not at all equivalent as far as disease transmission. Yeah. And I think there was a, a, a case I read, I can't find the link now, but... um. In Israel, they've opened the schools up again, and it was really, really hot. So it gets insanely hot, like 40 degrees Celsius. So it's like 105 Fahrenheit. Um, and they allowed the students to have masks off um, because it was too hot, only outside. But this led to another outbreak um, amongst one of the schools. There was like, I think, 15 staff and, and like tens of students who got infected. So it's unfortunately, this is the really reality we live in at the moment where it's just... Yeah. It has to be everything all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But even at the wedding I went to, when we had to move things inside for noise reasons, then inside we were all wearing masks and we were dancing and it would still work. Um, so, yeah, I, it wasn't as hot uh, as in this in these schools, but many activities can be done perfectly fine with a mask on. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah, Ma masks help, like wearing masks. <laughs> Um, I have two kind of correction things. So the first thing is really short. It's just that a week ago or a couple of weeks ago, we had this mention of the world's smallest dinosaur that was found. And there's now been the comment that this is almost definitely a lizard. So it wasn't a dinosaur. It was just a lizard, an old lizard. Um, it was super, super cute and tiny. And it looked very peacefully, peacefully snuggled in its amber block. Um, but another group of researchers, separate from the first who published the article, have a similar sample and they've done, I think, some genetic tests and it really groups these um, organisms in the lizard kind of clade mm -hmm. bunch of things, not in the, the true dinosaurs. So that's a shame. Mm -hmm. um, and the second is not really a correction. It's more a Tegan correction as far as... Um, two weeks ago when I was doing my diversity, I was talking about Elka McKenzie, um, who was born even McKenzie Lamb and, um, had a gender, um, reassignment later in life or became their, their representative gender later in life. And I really, I mentioned at the end of that podcast, how we have this problem in science, um, with names on papers and how we strongly link our name to our publications. And, um, there was a, a really nice feature, I thought, that there was some papers published by this Ian, uh, sorry, Ivan, not Ian, Ivan Mackenzie Lamb, who was um, the botanist. And in some of the later papers, they put their other identity name, Elka Mackenzie, on the paper as a co-author. And I thought this was really lovely because it was kind of trying to give Elka Mackenzie their true identity um, some claim on all of this scientific work that had been happening for years and i i tried to express how this is this is a problem um but i i did a really poor job of it and i was frustrated at myself at the time because i i wanted to say something and i couldn't say it nicely and lo and behold i'm really happy to say that somebody who has much more ability to say <laughs> the right thing has now published something so um Teresa jean um tannenbaum has also published i'm sorry it's also in nature but there is a statement that is called Publishers Let Transgender Scholars Correct Their Names. And I read this. It came out on the 22nd of July, so just like a couple of days after our last podcast. And it really perfectly 
yeah, go and go and read this. I tried to say things and I said them poorly, and this is just um, this is what I was trying to say, but I didn't have the experience or the like intellect to say these things. So I, I think it's it's a really important issue, and this kind of highlights the problems with not allowing renaming for people who are transgender. Um, mm-hmm. And I think yeah, it is something that we have to think about as a scientific community and it's something that we're still quite far behind. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes and I really encourage you to go and read that one. I have, um, because we talked so much about non-plant science today, I have one uh-huh. short thing that's related to plant science and that's that we can now make blue color uh, and by we, I mean a res- research team managed to make blue color from red beets. Um, hmm? The color blue uh, from organic from uh, organic sources is a difficult thing. Uh, usually, yeah. we have um, metal iron compounds Indigo. like copper uh, ions that are bound in a in a molecule that then gives a blue color. Like um, copper sulfate is the most known one, but there's many other things where the copper iron is the thing that's re- that's um, making the color of the entire chemical compound. But copper is a heavy metal iron, and that's potentially toxic. And and nothing, it's not really food safe. You shouldn't eat that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so finding blue color when you want to color things blue in a safe way is hard. Um, often when we when we see blue color in nature, these colors come from other effects. Like when you see the, um, the colors on jaybirds or butterflies and dragonflies, this, there's actually not a blue pigment in there, but it's a very special way they're scattering the light. Um, what? So the the color comes from like nanostructures on the surfaces instead of uh, actual like a pigment that you could isolate, and that's blue. Um, but indigo is kind of bluey purple, right? Yeah. Well, um, I don't know how like food safe that is, for example. Okay, that's how we call a blue jeans, I think. It's, it's with indigo. Yeah. Um, so in this um, study, they took the, the pigment from beetroot, that's red, um, and then they cleaved off a part of it and attached a dar- another part that's called 2,4-dimethylpyrrole. D- uh, um, and this combination of the part from a molecule from the beetroot and the attached molecule, this gives a blue pigment. Um, and the p- uh, pigment is able to stain hair, silk, cotton, cellulose, yogurt, and maltodextrin. Um, <laughs> yogurt? Who <laughs> stained yogurt? Yeah, they stained yogurt um, because they wanted to sh- see if that's like, if it's soluble in like a fat water em- uh, emulsion um, and could be used in f- the food industry. The question now is because the... I think, sorry, I think one of the scientists just had a tub of yogurt and was like, like <laughs> eating it while somebody else was staining and they're like, yeah let's give it a go like my yogurt is here (laughs) so (laughs) yeah maybe maybe that or maybe they actually looked at the potential applications of this and then tested all of like representative samples for all of these different applications nobody's gonna eat blue yogurt like blueberry yogurt i want it to be blue it's in the name. No, you don't. You, you think you want that, but do you eat Smurf ice cream? Like this bubblegum ice cream, as, as the a, color blue child, of pudding. As a child, definitely. Nowadays, I don't. I, I don't fancy the flavor. 
But um, when when I was young, at one stage, my parents decided that my sister and I had to cook a meal. I think I told you the story. Had to cook a meal each week, and when it was my turn to make the meal, I made rice. And firstly, I was bad at making rice, so the rice was very wet. But secondly, I thought I'm going to spice this up, and I put blue food dye in there. And that was pretty much like my parents were trying to encourage us to cook, so they were pretty okay with eating the terrible food we ate. <laughs> but that was the one time my my dad kind of took me aside and was like. Maybe not the blue next time. Like, maybe just <laughs> let's do the rice without the blue, Tegan. Nobody wants blue rice. <laughs> I remember, I think it was early 2000s when um, companies would bring out green ketchup, um, mm. so tomato sauce, and um, it tasted exactly the same as red tomato sauce, but it was colored green. It wasn't even, like, used from green tomatoes, as far as I know. Um, they no. just, like, put a ton of um, uh, food they color They bleached the red out and um, put some green in. And I also remember that I tried it once and um, that like the discrepancy of the color and the taste was just making me feel ill and I didn't want mm. to eat that and didn't want to finish that. Um, and I think it, that's why also it went off the shelves. I think a lot of people made that experience. So, yeah. Um, I mean, we don't eat many naturally blue things. Like, I mean, also blue cheese, but even then the blue is a dangerous sign that it's like fungus. It's, it's not. Yeah, And also not the entire cheese is blue. Mm. Um, yeah, like I th blueberries, as you said, but there's not many things that we eat that are I mean, actually blue. Uh, there's if you if you prepare red cabbage in an alkaline solution instead of with a acidic dressing, <laughs> it turns blue instead of red. So mm. um, that's I, in some parts of Germany, that's the way they prepare their red cabbage. That so, and they actually blue call cabbage. it them blue cabbage um, because it turns blue. So there are some like problem, fringe like, cases where where that's done. But I mean, this is part of the value of this is that blue is generally a more expensive color to make for organisms than for example an orange or yellow which is pretty yeah. freaking cheap like anyone can make carotenoids that's an orange or yellow color but making blue is kind of yeah the thing about and we have actually a, a friend who refuses to respect flowers unless they're blue or purple because he thinks <laughs> that like yellow and, and orange flowers are just cheap like <laughs> like the flower is not putting enough effort in for him to give them credit basically <laughs> Yeah. Um, the 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 last thing I want to say about this um this work is that the, the thing is called Beet Blue, and it's um non toxic to live zebrafish embryos and human cell cultures. But because of the addition of this two uh, four dimethyl or dimethyl pyrrole um, compound, um, which has That's no blue color. it ha yeah, but it has no natural origin. This thing that they add to this, so um, it will they will have to do extensive tests to prove that it's actually non toxic. Um, but mm. initial tests show that it's non toxic. So we probably not in the next year or two we will see suddenly everything colored blue. But maybe in the next five years or so uh, we'll have a wave of fancy blue food products because of. Uh, I'm, I'm copywriting that blue rice thing right now, just in <laughs> case anybody's listening. That's mine. I have it, and you have to pay me money if you want it. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Okay, the very quick plant fact I have is that I learned I was this many years old when I learned that there are different types of deciduous. So, Yoram, if if I tell you about deciduous trees, what do you think? I have to look up what deciduous means. It's like the opposite of evergreen. Ah, uh, the yeah. So the trees that uh, lose their leaves every year. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what do I think about them? Um, they why do they why do they lose their leaves? They they lose their leaves. I I think um, they lose their leaves to avoid dehydration um, because when uh, when it freezes, the water in the soil is not available anymore, um, but the leaves still transpire and it sort of sucks the the tree dry. Okay, well done, Europe. Uh, you said the buzzword that I wanted, which was um, yeah, they they try to avoid freezing. But actually, there's something called drought deciduous plants, which are plants that lose their leaves in the heat of summer for basically the same reason. They do not want to transpire. They do not want to to deal with drought, but because it's too hot, not because it's too cold. And I think it's ridiculous that I was raised and educated in Australia and I had not come (laughs) across the concept of drought deciduous, but I somehow (laughs) knew about your stupid European cold weather deciduous plants. Like, there's clearly a bias in our edge. I'm I'm sure that um, cold weather deciduous trees are much more common than hot weather deciduous plants. Um, But I came across this concept and I was... It was one of those things where I was like, how did I just not know that yet? That seems... Quite no, but I, also, I also didn't know about this. I also had a education very much um, shaped by the way we, yeah, by the plants that we have here. And they lose their their leaves in winter because um, when the water freezes in the soil, it's not available anymore, and so they they would dry out if they would keep their leaves, and so they they drop them. Um, okay, my other fact. I don't, did I do this last week? I don't think so. Um, what do you call... Do you know what Mola Mola is? No. Can you Google Mola Mola? Isn't Mola like a type of tooth? No, Mola Mola, M-O-L-A. Um, for those of you listening, do you know what a Mola Mola is? That's kind of the first important Ah, it's the question. sunfish, the ocean sunfish. Okay, so in Germany, do you call it sunfish? Wait, I would have to look that up because it's not native to Germany as far as I know. So well, it's found in the Mediterranean, so it's kind of yeah, closer we, to you than it is to me. No, we call it the say. lunar fish, the mount fish. Okay, exactly. So um, I was talking to my Italian friend about this sunfish and she was like, what the hell? That's not a sunfish, that's a moonfish. So I think um, there's, it's, it's this, in case you haven't seen it, I really encourage you to go and look at a mola mola, like just Google it because it's the most ridiculous looking fish. Um it's huge and it's fatty and it's just a ball and it looks like a moon. Um, so that's why it's called a moonfish in many languages. It's also called a sunfish because they like to sun themselves. So they kind of like float to the surface and just like let themselves get the the right. They kind of sit on their side. I think that's why it's called the sunfish. But the other reason it might be called the sunfish is because of how the baby mola mola um, looks. So Yoram, I'm now encouraging you to type mola mola baby into um <laughs> google <laughs> and look at what comes up and guys <laughs> stop what you're doing and go and do this it looks like exactly like a sun it's like a sun that you would draw when you're a kid it has little spikes that are the rays of the sun yeah and it's yellow and it has this cute little eyes and it's it's a sunfish like it's clearly not a moonfish it's clearly a sunfish yeah yeah. Okay. That's all I. That's basically this is some, what it, it, it looks like like a real Pokemon. Like you would have like the yeah. first evolution of it would be a sunfish, and then it would evolve into the moonfish, um, and just like grow bigger, and then suddenly take the shape of the of the moon. I am like there must be moonfish Pokemon. <laughs> let's let's see if that okay. exists. Um, because <laughs> no, I need you to do something. One more thing. <laughs> one more thing. Okay. 
The next thing is in Google, type Mola Mola Skeleton, keeping in mind your original Mola Mola and what he looks like. And now look at the skeleton of a Mola Mola. Um, yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. It's like a head, a spine, and then kind of a butt and feathers, like wing feathers all at the bottom. There's like this massive empty space that's just like just cartilage and space. meat and not bone at all. And I, I want to I wanna set out a question for our listeners here. Is a mola mola <laughs> the proof that God does exist? Because there's no way evolution could have come up with that shit. Or is it proof that God does not exist because this creature is very, very ungodly? Like, it does not make sense that his fins would be so close to his, um, like, his flippers and his tail should be close together. It's... It's ungodly. That's the only way to say it. So I would like, <laughs> I would like your opinion on this. Yoram, have you got a vote on whether it's ungodly or godly? Um, I think it's godly, but I think I want to mention here when we talk so much about the Mola Mola that there is a sort of a meme or a story that goes around for um, for a while where a person is very angry at the Mola Mola um, and tells a lot of what seems to be like facts about how stupid it is, um, um, how it's like the largest fi uh, largest bony fish um, and that it has no, <laughs> they say like in all caps and with no purpose, every pound of, of that is wasted pound and every foot of it is wasted <laughs> space. Um, mm -hmm. They are so completely useless that scientists even debate how they move and so on and mm. so on. Um, and that led to the fact that many people like started to hate it because based on this like very long thread of somebody hating on that fish and when they would encounter it in the wild they would throw rocks at it and so on um to the point that some ocean um experts like marine biologists um they mm -hmm. would say like most of the stuff that's written in that is not true um so these are like scientists know how they move and they are like important in their ecosystem and so on um and so Whenever you see that rant shared online because it's it's written in a very funny way, just know that the Mola Mola is not that terrible. It's actually a very nice fish and it has a purpose <laughs> and it looks ridiculous. And it tastes great. <laughs> but just like l leave it leave it alone. Leave Mola Mola alone. I mean, it's basically a fat head with um, <laughs> a stupid looking tail and little fins and it can weigh up to 2.3 tons. Like... That's insane. It's like two cars worth of fish. It's huge and muscular and fatty and... <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm going to hate on it. I think that's my... I mean, I have a friend who once saw them. She went into the Mediterranean and was like doing a, um, a boat cruise and she saw them, them starting and she said it's just the most beautiful and amazing thing. And I think the fact that they look like tiny sons when they are young makes me lean towards godly instead of ungodly but wow <laughs> such weirdos cat fact my cat fact is about the musical cats and its composer <laughs> that's not a cat fact <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber, who publicly um, expressed his annoyance at James Corden's ad-libs in the song that he did in the role of Buster for Jones. Um, I haven't seen the musical 
ever i haven't seen the movie i've seen um, a lot of takes on the movie and youtube videos about the movie so i know oh we've had the like, discussion before you it's a major flop and it's a terrible movie uh, but i just like that in in amidst all the terribleness of everything that is the cats musical and the movie um, that andrew lloyd Webber goes public and uh, to say just like specifically james corden's things that that weren't in the lyrics that he said between the verses that these things were terrible and that he tried to get them cut but the producers didn't cut them and that he's still sulky about it um uh, that 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 was news this week and I just so the news is andrew lloyd webber is the worst which i think we already knew <laughs> yeah. and also like I, w I really want opinion on this from other people as well <laughs> I have had this argument with Yoram for seven years now that he's not allowed to criticize a thing unless he's actually actively engaged with it. And he hasn't just engaged with people talking about it on the internet. He has to watch or read the original piece. Have you watched Cats yet? No. No. Okay, no comments from you on Cats. <laughs> I, there's things you can know without experiencing them firsthand that they're bad. It's like... Okay, I agree with you, that's true, but then you can opt out of seeing them. You cannot criticize them. That's my argument. Uh, I'm I'm just repeating Have the Have you read Fifty Shades of Grey yet? Because this came up like four years ago with Fifty Shades of Grey. No. And then like three years before that with the Twilight series. <laughs> uh, I'm not I'm that's why I'm not critiquing them on in, in detail. <laughs> I'm saying like I don't like them and I've heard people say you these things no, no, about no. them. It's not true that you don't like them. You could watch Cuts tomorrow and like that could be the love of your life. You could leave your wife and baby, dress up like a cat and move to Andrew Lloyd Webber's house and start meowing. Like this could be the thing for you and you do not know because you have not watched it. Uh, yeah, but I think I'm taking my chance at <laughs> like <laughs> not trying that. No, I, I, I disagree. <laughs> okay, um, I have an also terrible cat fact, which is that I've been following... <laughs> I've been following the Getty Museum Challenge on Instagram, and it's basically, I'm sure you guys all know about it, it's where people um, dress themselves up and take a photograph of themselves, which imitates a picture from the Getty Museum. Or actually, I think these days it's not even from the Getty Museum, it's just like any classical painting or photograph yeah, um, in I, a museum. I love every single image that comes out there because some of them are so perfectly close to them and some are so ridiculously far away but still recognizable and I, lo I love all of them. I can't, I can't see enough of those. What would you be if you had to be something? I know too little about modern art to say that. I, Judging from the things that I like I would probably take a Caspar David Friedrich image, probably the monk at the sea um and try to recreate that, but that's just physically hard because the person is very small in the image. I would have to stand very far away from the camera in an empty space, so that's just technically hard to do. Okay, I've now um, put a link to, can you see it on the Word document, to my favorite one so far. And um, I hope hopefully we can put this link in the show notes. Um, it's GKNY24 on Instagram, and it's a public <laughs> account, so you guys can see it. And it's somebody who has dressed their cat up like a Monet painting. So <laughs> the Monet painting is of a, a lady... I don't know, 1900s or something with a, a fluffy bonnet and a beautiful parasol and their cat is wearing <laughs> a fluffy bonnet and a beautiful parasol and the cat looks pissed, let's be honest. I'm, I'm, cat so is I'm always so impressed uh, with these images about uh, all of the 
detail that the people have at hand, like uh, be it the clothes or like some other tools. I'm going to be honest. I'm pretty sure this was a custom design floral bonnet that was made for the cat to make it fit the picture. I don't think she had like she or he. I feel like they've just committed here. Yeah, yeah. Because like, if I, if I even look through the galleries um, with these pictures, there's. I, sometimes it's just household items that they use in place of um, the original item but very often especially when it comes to the clothes they are so close to a real thing and these are not mm. just things that people have lying around I mean I'm looking at one uh, one uh, picture I don't know what the original artist is but it's sort of abstract and um, like a bouquet of flowers is in the hands of a, of a woman there and so in the um, remake uh, the bouquet of flowers is like two toilet paper rolls on sticks um, <laughs> because it's there also white. Uh, so that that's something I can understand where that comes from. But then I've seen others where they have just like, or somebody is replacing a Frida Kahlo image with parrots, uh, which just like green um, cleaning detergents um, that are um, arranged the same way the parents are uh, arranged on the body. Uh, so I can yeah. understand that. I think I think they're really. I would thoroughly recommend if you need a mental break and you just want to look at fun photos um, and pictures online, um, this is the place to go. <laughs> go to the Getty Museum Challenge hashtag. I think hashtag Getty Challenge or hashtag Getty Museum Challenge are the two options, maybe. Yeah, I think um, so, it's just so good. There's many many examples with toilet paper. Um. And what I really like is a lot of them have people involving, like, it's it's kids, and I can imagine that it's parents who are um, doing homeschooling now because of the lockdown, and they're finding ways to entertain their kids, and this just seems like a really beautiful, creative thing to do as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I just said it. I love this challenge. There's, not, there's nothing I dislike about this, um, <laughs> which is very rare for me. I love everything about it. <laughs> This is true. It's very rare for your <laughs> Yeah. I think that's it. Um, That was kind of a cat fact. Kind of, yes. Um, yeah, there was a cat in that. There was a cat in that. I, I think that counts. Um, so, if you want to get in touch with us and <laughs> um, tell us where we went wrong or where we went right, but like we, we enjoy getting corrections, um, but also if you have additional <laughs> points or th things you want to say, you can get with, in touch with us on social media. Um, on Twitter, you can talk to me. Uh, on That's at Plants Um On Twitter, you can also tell Yoram that he should go and watch Cats, the musical. Um <laughs> And if you want to talk to me to tell me that you should go and watch Cats the Musical, I'm on Facebook. <laughs> it's at Plants and Pipettes. And I'm also on Instagram at Plants and Pipettes. Did you watch Cats? No. Yeah. <laughs> I have other things. To do, but but do you notice how I'm not complaining about Cats? Do you, do you notice that? <laughs> <laughs> we also have a website. It's www.plantsandpipettes.com. And there we publish twice weekly um, stories about new and cool things that are happening in plant molecular biology. So this week we're talking about microplastics and how they can get into plants. And then we also talked about something else, which I forget. Uh, rice and how researchers discovered two genes that help uh, rice to keep its head above water when it's flooded. Yeah, um, that's, <laughs> that's so selfish of me. I don't remember because I didn't write it. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, I, I feel the same way. I'm looking at the things you write. And it's just like... Yeah, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, the cool stories uh, <laughs> are written by me. Um, <laughs> but as long as we both feel that way, I think it's fine. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, you can rate it. us. Go and, rate us wherever yeah. you find a place to rate podcasts. Tell your friends about us. Um, that's honestly one of the best way to support us. Uh, just spread the word that we exist and that we do things that are so, sort of adjacent and, to plants. Oh, and we also have another plant adjacent thing, which is we are with Ellen Earhart running the Plant Book Club. So if you want to hear a much more structured podcast <laughs> where we talk about um, each month, we talk about our opinion on a book that we've just read, all three of us, um, on a plant-related topic, um, check out the Plant Book Club in your favorite podcatcher. The opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And goodbye. And goodbye. Oh, by the way, we're doing probably a little summer break. Um, so for one or two weeks. Two weeks. For two weeks, um, you will have a break. And then we'll come. All, we all meet again here, freshly energized with more plant science. See you then. Yeah. And make sure you've seen the movie Cats. <laughs> or, no, shut up, Tegan. <laughs> shut up, Tegan. All right.